Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. Says who? It was first grade. We were on the soccer field of the playground at my school, and I had just yelled at some kid, you can't use your hands in soccer. Says who? He yelled back as he ran off with the ball and threw it in the net to the resounding cheers of his team. Now, being in first grade and not knowing anything about the USSF or FIFA or the governing bodies of soccer, I was stumped and enraged at the sheer injustice of it. With two little words, he reduced my legitimate protest about the rules to just one more person's opinion. And it worked because his team cheered for him. Now, I promise I'm not still bitter with this kid. (laughs) But that's the power of the question, says who? Uh, Harvard legal scholar Arthur Leff in the 70s in an article wrote about the grand says who and showed how its power reaches far beyond that of inept soccer players on the playground. It is a question that unmasks the hidden authority behind any claims that you might make about what someone should or shouldn't do. It implies that everything is just an opinion, just someone's agenda. And we're actually pretty well used to asking it. We ask it in all sorts of ways because it exposes people's inability to tell us why we should do something or shouldn't do something. So let's practice today. I will say, make some moral claim and you guys respond like punk kids on the playground. You should not wear white after Labor Day, says who? I don't know, probably some people who want to sell more clothes. You should not ask people their age, says who? I don't know, but I'm guessing it's older people who don't want you to ask. They're embarrassed by it. You should not play Christmas music before Thanksgiving. I do. Because it's the truth and you shouldn't do it. Now, of course, these are not the kinds of moral claims that make for tense conversations with your family members at your family reunions this summer. I bet if you're willing to do it, you could all think of some things that some of your relatives or family members need to hear, but you're not going to say to them. Maybe it's, you should respect the governing authorities even when you don't agree with them. Or, you shouldn't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. But you're not going to say any of those things because you know it will only provoke that angry retort, says who? Now, it's not that our culture doesn't believe in moral truths. We do. You can't watch the news, whether it be left or right, for more than five minutes without hearing some very fierce moral convictions voiced by one person or another. The problem is that while ancient cultures built their their moral values on some common foundation, some ultimate beginning that was common to all people and therefore applied to all people, we, by definition, don't believe in such a thing. Or at least we don't talk about it in the legal sphere. We don't have some common beginning like the Tao or the gods or some almighty creator. So we have convictions in our culture, but we don't have a ground to validate them. Let me show you. You shouldn't buy and sell human beings. Well, human rights. We all have an inherent dignity that gives us a right to liberty. Thomas Jefferson? The Constitution? 
The UN? Uh, well, that's actually a pretty good question because not all cultures believe in human rights. And, well, maybe, well, our culture is clearly better than other cultures that don't believe in, civil, in human rights. You see the problem, right? We get, around, we get along so well and have so few social problems. You see the problem that we have moral convictions, and many of them are good and right and true, but we have no one outside ourselves to say what they are and why other people should share them. We've got no final answer to the grand says who. And this is not simply an academic problem. Most of you have had the experience at one point or another of speaking with maybe your adult children or your teenagers or your relatives or your parents and stating some moral idea that you thought was obvious, you thought you shared, but you were met with complete bewilderment and offense. Or maybe you said something, or you heard, or sorry, you heard them say something very confidently, but you have no idea what planet they're living on. In fact, that's actually the experience we're increasingly growing to have, that, one another, that we are each living on our own little moral planets, building our own little moralities. And the result is you cannot talk to some of the people that you love most about anything more significant than the weather without provoking the grand says who. Arthur Leff closes his article with these haunting words that describe our predicament, and I'm going to read them to you because they're, they're quite important. He writes about moral values, All I can say is this. It looks as if we are all we have. And given what we know about ourselves and about each other, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, it appears that if all men are brothers, then the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Neither reason, nor love, nor terror seems to have worked to make us good, and worse than that, there is no reason why anything should. Only if ethics were something unspeakable by us, Beyond our ability to say, could it be unchallengeable? But as things stand now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling one another is depraved. Those who stood up and died resisting Hitler and Stalin and other tyrants have earned salvation. Those who acquiesce deserve to be damned. There is in the world such a thing as evil altogether now, says who? God help us, he writes. Now you might be wondering where on earth is Pastor Nathan going with all this, and I'm glad you asked, because today is Holy Trinity Sunday, and the Holy Trinity is the gospel's answer to the grand says who. The belief that God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the gospel's answer to every question that we might throw at one another about morality. And it is the gospel's answer to our current cultural crisis. Now today, in unfolding this, I have two particular groups of people in mind that I'm hoping are gonna hear today. And that is, first, if you are a believer in Jesus and you do not know really what the Trinity is all about. You don't think it's that important, it's just the reason pastor makes us read a long creed at the one Sunday a year, which we're not gonna do today. Perhaps you consider it some strange math problem. Or maybe you're not a believer, and the Trinity just sounds to you like one more absurdity that Christians added on to their gospel to make sure that faith and reason never get along. But to both of you today, I want to make the case that the Trinity is not just one more thing. 
It is the assurance that the gospel, that the story of Jesus, shows us the heart of all reality. And therefore, the gospel's answer is a compelling answer to the problem that is tearing apart our culture, our families, and our very selves. To see this, we're going to, do, we're going to take little Costco samples of each of our scripture readings for today. We're going to begin with Genesis and then go to the gospel and the epistle lesson. So let's start with Genesis 1. Now, modern people take all sorts of problems with this first chapter of the Bible, but the most challenging words to accept, and indeed the most important, are the very first three. Bereshit bara Elohim in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created. Now, this seems like the easy part, until you give it five seconds of thought and ask, well, in the beginning of what? Space and time? Well, how can there be a beginning to time? For something to begin, it has to not be and then be. And that means you've got two times on your hand already. How can, there, how can there be a before if there's no time? This is why most ancient philosophers thought that the world was eternal. It always existed because they could not imagine a beginning to time. And so they mocked Genesis 1 with snarky questions like, what was God doing before creation? And Christians responded with equally snarky answers, creating hell for people who ask impertinent questions. <laughs> but St. Augustine, in his book, The Confessions, after he, he writes about this exchange, he chides Christians who would dismiss the force of the problem in this way, as if the words in the beginning posed us no problem. For the truth is that these words confront us with a deep mystery. They confront us with the limits of our own minds the limits of our abilities to understand something. And thus, the scriptures begin by speaking from a place that is beyond all human speech, a place that no human being could occupy, a place where our reason and our language break down, claiming an authority to be the first and therefore the final answer to the grand says who. Now, the very first words of Genesis confront us with the impenetrable mystery of God, the one who was before all befores, beyond our understanding, who, in his own freedom, creates a world by language, by his purpose, for his design. What is that purpose and design? Well, we see it at the end of chapter 1, and I want to sum it up with one simple word. Love. Love. That is, two different beings being united to one another. God designed the world for the purpose of love. The relationship of love between him and his human creatures. That he created to know him and he spoke to them. He created them different from one another, male and female, so that they would be united to one another in love. He created them different than the rest of the creatures, so that they would exercise authority for the good of those creatures in love. God made the world in love and for love. And all the rest of the commandments in Scripture that follow from this, all the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, have this answer behind them. Says who? The God who created you in love and for love. The law of God gives us the contours of what it means. Pastor Bruick teaches the compromise when he does the Ten Commandments that these are the boundaries of love. Thus, the Bible pushes us beyond simple platitudes like love is love to actually talk about what it means to love particular individuals in particular ways. Because that's the truth that is often forgotten when we're talking about morals. They are statements of what it means to love. What actions are loving? What are unloving? 
What does it look like for human beings to love God, to love one another? What does love relate to our possessions, to our sexuality, to our words? And the answer of Genesis to all of this, when you ask the question, says who, is this. The Father, who from before and beyond your understanding, created you in love and for love. Now, if we stop there, we might have a good moral foundation, a good answer to the question, but not a very encouraging one. Because if we're honest with ourselves, what we can't think too long about God's purpose of love without recognizing our own failures to love. The fact that at times we have loved ourselves rather than the people that we were given to love. All of us have at one point or another, as Left says, taken our lead from Cain and Abel rather than God. And thus the answer to the grand says who also makes God our judge. Precisely because he created the world for the good purpose of love, our failure to be that is a rebellion against him. And as Leff said in those haunting words, those who stood up and died resisting Hitler and Stalin have earned salvation and those who acquiesce deserve to be damned. If we do not know this God more fully, we only know him as judge. If we only know him as the beginning who created us in love and for love, then we only know judgment. And either we recoil from it and despair, or we appoint ourselves judges, like left, and declare who is in and who is out. And I don't know about you, but when I contemplate being in situations like those under Hitler and Stalin, it's far easier, I like to think that I would do the right thing, but it's far easier to imagine myself protecting my family rather than doing something that would cost me everything. But so if we're honest with ourselves, the truth that God speaks in love from the beginning is as much a cause for fear as it is for joy. But I said that the Trinity is the gospel's answer to the grand says who, which is why we need to turn now to the gospel lesson, where Jesus, having been crucified and raised from the dead, says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Given by whom? Well, The Father. The Father who spoke from beginning, the beginning who had all authority, has now given it to the Son. His power and authority are now spoken and exercised through this man, Jesus. And this is astonishingly good news, because it means that if we want to know the God who speaks from the beginning, we have to look at the man from Nazareth, the son of Mary, the friend of sinners, the one who sought out those who were broken by others' unlovingness, those who were wounded by their own failures to love. And he brought them forgiveness and healing. The one who confronted self-righteous Pharisees and their failures to love. And who finally gave up his own life in love for the very sinners who betrayed and condemned him, praying for their forgiveness. This perfect life that Jesus of Nazareth lived and his sacrificial death, they have earned him the right to speak with the authority of all creation. And that means that he gets to speak the last word on your life. And that means, therefore, that his word of forgiveness is not one more thing we made up. Not one more human opinion. But it is the opinion of the king of the universe who paid for that truth with his very life. So the triune God that we know as father and son is not only the basis for moral meaning. He is the reason that you can have hope that your moral failures don't determine your future. That your failure to love does not damn you. So let's try this again. You are 
a sinner, broken and wounded. Says who? Jesus, the perfect embodiment of God's love. You are forgiven and have a future of hope. Says who? The one who gave his life to buy it and purchase it. You will one day be the loving being that God made you to be. Says who? The one who wrote the name of the triune God onto you when he baptized you with his authority. And that brings us to our third and final text, the last bite of scripture that we need today. This passage from Acts is the end of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, picking up where Pastor Bruick left us last week. When the Holy Spirit had come to empower the church with the words of God's mighty salvation, Peter sums this up in Acts 2.33. He says about Jesus, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, all the power that God used to create the universe has not only been given to Jesus, he is now using it and exercising it through the Spirit among us to fix and heal this world, to fix and heal your heart, to reconcile enemies, overcome divisions, and make us what we could never be of ourselves by the gift of his Holy Spirit. And this is where the triune life becomes present among us. And the beautiful conviction that we are so often, we are so often led to reject this idea. That we can be different than we are now. I mean, Leff said it. Neither reason, nor love, nor terror seems to have worked to make us good. And worse than that, there's no reason why anything should. We look at the world and we see eons of brokenness and we think this is just the way things are. Racial division will always be with us. Poverty will always be with us. My own fear and resentment and anger will always be who I am. Sexual chaos is the norm. Resentment is the way things happen. Or maybe you just hear it like this. I'm just like my dad. In all the wrong ways. But the spirit of the living God... The power of the risen Jesus is here and now among you. The power of God's love is here healing creation, pouring God's very love back into it, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to love with that same love that Jesus loved. And that means that the Spirit overcomes divisions between Jews and Greeks, between male and female, between slaves and free. He unites people to one another by uniting them to Jesus. He is God helping us doing here and now what we could never do for ourselves by sculpting Christ in you. So what does this look like? Well, in the first place, it looks like faith, like people speaking about Jesus. He's not doing it through coaching you to try harder. It's not a 12-step plan for curing yourself of hatred. It's the power of believing that Jesus' words go to the very heart of reality, that Jesus' words, the water, the wine, and the bread... And the promises that are attached to them aren't simply things that Jesus or God said one day. They are expressions of God's eternal life. They are the last word because they are the first word. So this is the gospel's answer to the grand says who? The father who created in love, the son who gave himself in love to redeem, and that Holy Spirit who pours that love of God into our lives now. 
And here we've arrived at the biggest and most important aspect of this whole story. These are not three gods among a bunch of others. This is not one plan that God might revert to when the Holy Spirit doesn't work to do his thing. This is the expression of who God always has been. Love. The Father, who in love gives his entire life eternally to the Son. The Father and the Son, who give their lives eternally to the Spirit. This is who God has always been, all the way down. Self-giving love. And we see that revealed in the gospel. We see that enacted and incarnated in the life of Jesus. And we see that and we feel that present here among us as the gift of God's Spirit does his work. For this gospel story is the first and the last story. It is the one that will never be unsaid and, and permits no rivals. Because it is the story of the eternal love of God. The love that goes all the way down. It is the beginning in which God made everything, and it is the future towards which he is bringing it. So let's try this says who thing one more time. The world has moral meaning, with good and evil, right and wrong. The Father who created it in love and for love and by love. Yet you will not be condemned by your sin, by your evil and your failure to love. The son who gave his life in love for his enemies and for you, that he might forgive them with the very power of God. You will be one day the person that God made you to be. You will radiate and shine like the light of the sun and the glory of the father. Says who? The spirit who even now is pouring the love of God into your heart through these words and promises of Jesus. Amen.